so if I had to give a title to this morning's message, I'd call it Living Life by the Book. And of course, the book that we're talking about is indeed the Word of God. It's where we're learning about the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, <clears throat> probably one of the verses, I know everyone in Awana learns this verse. It's where I wanted to just kind of begin our thoughts this morning. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us that all Scripture, all of the Bible, the Word of God is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, that is teaching, for reproof, that is kind of warning, for correction, if you've already made some mistakes, and for instruction in righteousness, how to continue in the right direction, so that the man of God may be complete and mature and thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you want to live life by the book, and we're talking about the Bible, then we need to know what the Bible has to say. And God is reminding us that every single part of this book has what we need in order to live the life that God desires for us to be able to live. However, we live in a day where the word of God is under attack. But this is nothing new, right? If we were to go all the way back to the very first scenes of the scriptures, we would find that the first woman on earth, Eve, was in the garden one day, this beautiful place that God had made. And she was approached by that serpent. Of course, Satan was working through that serpent. And as he began to ask her questions about what God had said, suddenly he began to ask, well, did God really say? And began to cast doubt on the very word of God. And doubt spread to absolute contradiction And of course, she was deceived, and the world has never been the same since. And so, we are in a world where the need is just as great, if not greater than ever, that we understand the importance of the Word of God, that we learn to know it and study it for ourselves, that we may be um, ready for the challenges that will come. In fact, Hebrews 5.24 tells us, uh, and this is the writer of Hebrews talking to Christians who who already had a relationship with God, but they were still babies. He said, by now you ought to be mature yourselves. I'd like to feed you a full plate of the meat of God's word, but you need to go back and have simple milk like a baby. He said, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age or mature. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. There's some practice necessary in order to walk rightly in the path that God is laying out for us in his word so that we can discern right and wrong and good and evil. And so uh, the word of God would say in 2 Timothy 2.15, Therefore be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. This is the challenge for us. The word of God covers many, many things. But uh, in order for us to rightly divide it, we will take some diligent study on our behalf to do that. So um, uh, that's where we're going to seek to go today as we, um, as we look at this passage. Will you just join me in prayer? We're going to be in a lot of passages. Sometimes I wait till we read through the long passage, but I don't want to uh, wait that long to ask God's blessing upon our time together in his word. Shall we? Let's pray. Father, I want to say thank you again for bringing us here today. We know that you have a plan 
for each of our lives. You are a great and good God, and nothing happens by accident. You allow the things that happen that we don't like sometimes because you have a purpose for it, and uh, you desire that we discover it and follow it. We just ask, Lord, that while we're here today, you would speak to us and show us how to apply these things to our daily lives when we leave here. Father, I do pray that you would give me the words to say. There are a lot of places we want to go, and I pray that you would guide uh, each and every step of our study and journey today through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to try this microphone again, so hopefully it won't be too much of a distraction. Now, you see, I was thinking about Martin Luther this week. Martin Luther lived in a day where the people in his day, he was there, the church itself was teaching things that were not true according to the Bible. And as he was studying the word of God for himself, he began to discover what God had to say. And when he realized that the most important one of those was something he was searching for in his own heart and life, how do I know that my sin is forgiven? How do I know that I have a right relationship with God? He realized that what he was learning from the church was not true, but what God's word said was absolutely true. And so Paul would write, and this is the verse that struck him, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he found salvation when he realized that it was simply by believing, not through all the, the, the deeds and penances and things that he was told would bring him forgiveness of sins. It was what the word of God said. Simply by faith in Jesus Christ. And he began to see it all over the place. You've probably seen this too. In Acts chapter 16, the Apostle Paul was traveling and he was in prison. And God did a miracle that night in the jail where everyone's shackles fell off in an earthquake and no one ran away. And the jailer, thinking his life was at stake, because if anyone got away, he would lose his life from Caesar. And before he killed himself, Paul stopped him and said, listen, no one has left. Don't harm yourself. And the man who'd been hearing Paul and Silas singing praises to God, seeing the evidence of God alive in his life, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they turned to him and said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. The Bible says, It's not by works that we have done. It's simply by God's grace that we are saved, and through faith. And not ourselves, it's simply a gift of God, not of works that no one should boast. This is still the same thing that Satan is trying to distort. He wanted to ruin the relationship with Adam and Eve in the garden with God. And once it was destroyed, he didn't want them to repent and turn to God. He didn't want them to accept God's way of forgiveness. But they understood this is God's way. God made a way of forgiveness for Adam and Eve in the garden when he made animal skin clothing for them. God has made a way for us to have forgiveness. It's a gift of God to you, not by works that you do. And you can receive it by faith, just like that jailer did 2,000 years ago. Just like I did when I was just a young person and finally understood I was a sinner who needed the Lord Jesus Christ. And I talked to many of my friends. I talked to my neighbors. And Satan has been so good at clouding the primary issue of the Word of God. How can a sinner like me be restored to relationship to God? It's simply by believing in the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross, putting your faith and trust in Him, and He takes your sin, nails it with Jesus there on the cross, He takes Jesus' perfect record, puts it on your account, and gives you everlasting life. 
My friends, we're going to be talking today about how God would have us to walk and live as Christians who have experienced this everlasting life, this born-again experience. Before we get into that, I just wanted to stop and say I don't want Satan to confuse you today if you're here not knowing Christ as your Savior. If you still don't know that your sin is forgiven, then trying to do the things that we're going to talk about here today from, from the rest of this message is not going to help you to get to, to heaven. We're glad that you're here today, but that doesn't do it, right? If I go stand in my garage all day, that doesn't make me a car. If you're a car, it's a good place to be. Coming to church doesn't make you a Christian, but if you are one, it's a good place to be. God tells us we should be here together, learning from His Word. But it's your personal decision to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ that gives you everlasting life. And I would encourage you, like Martin Luther, who finally learned that and began to spread it to everybody, and they called him into a, a religious court, and they said, you need to take back everything that you've said or else we're going to kill you. And this famous quote of his, he said, unless I am convinced by proofs from scriptures, the word of God, or by plain and clear reasons and arguments, I can and will not retract. For it is neither safe nor wise to do anything against the conscience. So here I stand. I can do no other. God, help me. It's where we stand as Christians. The world may come against us today for the things that we stand for that are clearly taught in the Word of God. But we have to be like Martin and say, Here I stand. Unless you can show me from the Word of God where I'm wrong. And they couldn't show him from the word of God because what they were teaching was against the word of God. And so they sought to put him to death. But that is where we all must stand. Learning to let the Bible be our final authority. The, the ensuing Reformation period that happened really reinforced this. Sola Scriptura, they would say in the Latin. Only the word of God. This is our authority for faith, and for practice as Christians. If what we believe contradicts this, then what we believe is wrong and we need to change it to match what the Word of God says. If what we're practicing violates the Word of God, we need to change our practice to align with the Word of God. Tradition doesn't cut it. This is the danger for us as people. Somehow we think that the longer we are doing something, that it just must be okay to be doing it, or that it's right to do it simply because we've been doing it a long time. But what does the Word of God say? Living by the book is what we are called to do. So, <clears throat> if we're going to study and be diligent to present ourselves approved to God, we need to be accurate in our Bible study. And... Um, this is not meant to be a, de a detailed thing on how to study the Bible, but I hope that you've at least heard this before. There is a process to being able to read and study the Bible to take out of it the right things, the right conclusions. And there are basically three steps to doing that. And the first one is simply to observe what the Bible is saying. You ask yourself when you're looking at the Bible, well, what does it say? And if you're asking that question consistently, you're also going to realize what it does not say. Because I'm looking right at it and I say, oh, well, it doesn't say anything about that. But it does say this. And so we want to simply look at the Word of God and realize what does it say. And once we've looked at what it does say, then we have to ask ourselves another question. What does this mean? 
what was the writer 2,000 years ago trying to get the people in Corinth or the people in Colossae or the people in Rome to understand? What was he trying to tell them? What did he mean by the things that he said to them? Because he was speaking to them in that historical setting. He used words in a language that I don't speak, but they would have understood certain things from what he said, and we have to dive into those things. What did he mean when he said those things to those people? And once we understand that, I see what it says, I've investigated what was he trying to say, what does he mean by that? Then I have to ask myself, okay, what am I supposed to do about this? What difference should it make in my life today? You know... The things that people were told 3,000 years ago to do may not be what God is asking us to do, but the lessons that they learned may be something I need to learn and figure out how that same lesson applies in our day and age today. I know that's very theoretical, but I tell you what, this is fundamental. This is the order we have to do it. Sometimes we just take the Bible and spring it open and we read something and we think, okay, I need to do that. Well, we just need to be careful because Satan is working hard to confuse us and get us on the wrong path. Think about how he used the Bible. Satan used the Bible to try to trick Jesus into disobeying the Father. He used the Bible. But the Bible is the word of God and Jesus is God, so he understood the Bible backwards and forwards and he was not deceived. But we can easily be deceived if we're not careful. So we need to follow these steps. And and I would say that that our greatest challenge is that we skip too quickly over the observation part of this. Because what it means and what we should do with it, those questions are not going to produce the best answers unless we've really spent time in the observation part. So we need to learn with that. And I I would say to you, um, most of us own the book by Nate Bramson called What If? Jesus Meant What He Said. At the back of that book, he explains how he teaches the young men that he uh, disciples how to study the Bible. And he gives them a really neat philosophy for Bible study. Taking whatever verse you're looking at and finding 20 observations. Sometimes there's a lot more than that. But the first five or six, ten, they come pretty quickly. But making yourself linger longer and look, what else is here, gives you much better observation so that you can make the right interpretation and application of the text. And then he, he asks you to write ten questions and then think about five of those, meditate on them, and, and, and uh, find one thing to take away that God would have you to apply. It's really, you can read it in the back of your book, but it, it, it's, it's been really helpful. So I encourage you to take a look at that. I won't read you the story, but it's interesting. The importance of observation. Uh, perhaps you're familiar with Sherlock Holmes and Watson, his assistant, and... Um, Watson was always amazed at how Holmes could deduce so many things on his cases. And he received a pocket watch from a relative, and it was brand new to him. And so he said to Sherlock Holmes one day, Listen, what can you tell me about the previous owner of this watch? I just received it in the mail recently, and and what can you tell me about this person? So Sherlock Holmes took it, and he opened it up, and he spent just a few minutes looking at it with his eye, and then he got out his little spectacle and looked at it, and he popped it together and said, Well, there's not much here. It was just recently cleaned, so all my best clues aren't even available to me anymore. But anyway, thanks for the opportunity. And Holmes was like, yo, what a lame excuse. I mean, not Holmes. Watson was thinking, you know, using that they cleaned it as some excuse that you can't do this, right? But then Sherlock Holmes said, but there are a few things that I observed. And so he said, well, you know, it's obvious that the person who owned it 
which he assumed was your your brother Watson, that he received it from his father some years ago. But since then, he's lived a life of drunkenness and had various seasons of great poverty in his life, but yet kind of had some seasons where he kind of prospered again, but then, you know, he, he's just had some real struggles over time. And, uh, 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 and now he's finally passed on and left this watch to you. And Watson was so upset. He said, how can he know these things? You've obviously been tricking me. You've done some study about my brother, and now you're just trying to trick me into thinking you deserve that for my watch. He said, no, 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 listen, I'm sorry. I was just in my clinical mode. I didn't realize this. Of course, this is a personal situation for you. But then he began to recount to him. He said, look at that watch. On the inside, there's these little numbers scratched in there. When someone goes to the pawn shop, instead of tagging it with a receipt, they used to scratch it in the inside. And there's about four different sets of those numbers. So the person obviously had been in and out of the pawn shop with this watch on many occasions. It's got the same letter on the outside, W, and it's an old watch. So it must have been your father's, but then he passed it on to someone else and it just now came to you. And, and, and the damage to the keyhole where you wind it is so dented. He said, to the average person they may not notice, but he said, there's not a single man who's a slave to alcohol whose watch will not show you the same uh, dents. And so he said, I didn't mean to, you know, speak belligerent or uh, badly of your brother, but I did observe these things in the watch. And, and Watson was amazed. And Holmes evidently said to him, yes, you can see, but you don't observe. And, you know, we go to the Bible the same way. We seem like we're familiar with it. We read the same chapters we've always read. We sat here in this room for so long that sometimes when we come to the Word of God, it's hard for us to observe because it's familiar to us. I challenged myself with a few questions. I'd like to challenge you with the same, right? How many traffic lights did you pass through on your way here this morning? Do we even know? We pass by them every week, but we don't pay attention. If you were to close your eyes and consider what verses are on the canvas paintings in this room, there are four on the sidewalls, include the one behind me, there's five. Do you know what they are? I remembered two. What about how many chandeliers are in this room? You sit under them every week. Do you know? Seven. In case you're wondering, right? Do you know what scripture verses by the front door when we leave every week? Do you even know that there's a poster there, a canvas with a verse on it? There's lots of things we see every day, but we're not observing. And that's just everyday things. What about the word of God? We need to, to think about those things. Oh, oh, those are the questions I was going to ask you. Do you know what Andrew was wearing this morning while he sang all those songs? Everyone's turning around to look, right? That was just a few minutes ago. All right, I'm going to skip this next one for the sake of time. Um, in the word of God, Moses received the Ten Commandments. We heard them very capably quoted this morning from little Malachi. But you know, after he received the law, the Ten Commandments, he gave them to the people. And they journeyed through the wilderness for 40 years. And before Moses passed on and left the torch of leadership with someone else, the Bible says that he regave the law to the people a second time. That's what Deuteronomy means. The second law, or the second giving of the law. Deutero nomos. And um, 
in that book, it's interesting what it says. Deuteronomy 4.2. This is the last book that Moses wrote before he died. But here's what he told the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 4.2. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor shall you take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. They had the law. Yes, they were to keep it. But there was another warning to them. Do not add to these words. Same thing, Deuteronomy 12, 32. Sometimes we repeat things that are important, right? And God has Moses repeat them to the people. He says... When you get into the land and you look around, you see the, all the other people there and you see they worship their gods differently than you do and you're going to be tempted to try to worship me that way. He said, don't do it. Verse 32, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it and you shall not add to it nor take away from it. So we, not only are we to obey what God's word says, he says we need to be careful not to add to it. Now, why do I, do I mention this? It's because... Uh, Number one, it's repeated over and over again. In Joshua 1, just a few, uh, let's see, a few pages over because Moses does die and pass the leadership on to Joshua. Three or four times in this passage in Joshua 1, 6 through 9, he says, I want you to be strong and courageous. Be careful to observe and do all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn to the right or to the left so you may prosper wherever you go. And he says, meditate on it day and night and make sure that you do the things that are in the law so you will make your way prosperous. That's Joshua 1. So here, as the people of God are leaving slavery, they're, they're, they're experiencing a new freedom in relationship to God. And he says, listen, I'm giving you my word. I want you to keep it, but be careful to keep it accurately and know what I have said and what I have not said and do not add to it. Solomon said the same thing in Proverbs thirty. Verses 5 and 6. I'm not going to go there. I just wanted you to see that it's in different parts of the scriptures. All the way to the end of the Bible, in Revelation 22, the very last few verses of scriptures in 18 and 19 say, Listen, there's a blessing for you if you take heed to and hear this word and, 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 and obey it. But if you add to it, there's going to be curses that befall you. If you take away and, and, and cast aside these words, your name will be taken out of the, the book of life. It's a serious thing to treat God's word that way and add to it or take away from it. So why am I going through all this, right? See, Jesus gave instructions to his disciples. In Matthew 28, it's one of the passages of the Great Commission, he told them, I'm sending you to make disciples of all the nations, and I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Did they do that? They did. And so all of his 12 apostles, or the 11, and when they replaced him with one more, there was 12. Um, uh, they went out and they did this. And, and worldwide, the gospel was spreading. And um, after Paul became a, a missionary and servant of the Lord, he himself was doing the same. And here's what he said to the people in Thessalonica in his second letter. He said, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Here's what I want us to realize, right? There are commands of scripture that are given. 
And as the people of God practiced them, uh, they were told to continue these practices and to teach them to others. Uh, and so he says, I want you to hold to these things that I have taught you, whether through the word of God or through my own personal presence there teaching them to you. And so, uh, well, I want to highlight this word. Traditions sometimes means differently today than what it meant then. But this is the crux of where we want to consider today and how the word of God is applying to our lives in the church today. When we go to fulfill the commands of God, some things are scripted for us, and sometimes we have to figure out how to to apply those things. And so we choose to do them certain ways, and the more we do them, they become what we call today our traditions. And we can confuse what the Bible meant for tradition, and what we in our day consider traditions, and it gets very cloudy. I feel like I just made it cloudy myself. So let me, let me come back to the word of God here. See, the word tradition comes from a Greek word called paradosis, which is an old word for just what has been handed over to someone or delivered to them. And so the word is colorless, they say. It's neither good nor bad. It just means there was some body of information that was delivered to you. Okay? So these things from God that, uh, uh, the apostle delivered to the the Christians were those delivered things, which they called traditions. Now, he also says, this is 1 Corinthians 11, 23. This is the passage in 1 Corinthians here where uh, Paul teaches them about the Lord's Supper, something we did this morning, which we cherish. And he said, listen, the thing I have received from the Lord, that which I also delivered to you. And that word delivered basically is the verb form of the word we just saw. The traditions were the things delivered, but he said the the things that I I gave them over or delivered them to you to keep and to take care of or to manage, right? So the verbal commands that he delivered to them, he said, that's what I did. I received them from the Lord. I delivered them to you. So really, it's almost a pun when he says in 1 Corinthians 11, 2, he says, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Really, it's a pun where Paul's saying, you keep the delivered things just as I delivered them to you. So what did he deliver? Well, there were commands, there were principles, and they were trying to practice them. Um, The Lord's Supper was one. And we're going to come back and talk about the specifics of the Lord's Supper as one of our examples in a moment. But here was an admonition that I found in the Word of God uh, a while back that was very helpful to me and to us here at our chapel. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 4, if you'll turn with me there for just a moment, Paul is, is writing a letter in response to things that were going on in Corinth. And in Corinth, there were those who were resisting the authority of Paul. God had given him authority as an apostle. But there were those who were not accepting it. And they were trying to stir up accusations against Paul. And what he says in 1 Corinthians 4 is very striking. He says to them, listen, verse 1, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. For moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. 
I know of nothing against myself, and yet I'm not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Follow what he's saying. He's like, you're, you're casting all these accusations against me. But he said, listen, I already see myself as a steward of a servant of God. I've been entrusted with certain responsibilities by God, and I'm seeking to be faithful with those. And the thing that he was entrusted with was the gospel and the message to the church. And he said, the fact that you're judging me doesn't bother me. He said, I know that I'm going to stand before God as judge. He's the one that judges me. And listen, I don't know of anything against myself. My conscience is perfectly clear about the things that I've been teaching you, the way I've been living my life according to what God has revealed to me. But that doesn't mean I'm innocent. My conscience may have missed something. I'll stand before God and he'll show me where I'm wrong. I'm going to stand before him. The fact that you're judging me, I'm trying my best to live my life by the word of God and and not violate that conscience. But then he says this. So, judge nothing, verse 5, before the time until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart, and then each one's praise will come from God. I'll let God judge. But listen, what he, here's verse 6. Now, these things I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. He says to them, while you're trying to discern right and wrong, I want you to be careful not to think beyond what is written. God's word tells us everything we need to know, but there are things where he has not revealed to us. And we need to be careful that we don't fill in the blanks beyond what God has said. And this is what gets most of us in in various local churches at odds one with another is because we often are thinking beyond what is written and then thinking that what we've concluded is authoritative and we get ourselves in hot water. So uh, this is a challenge. This is a challenge. It's what Adam and Eve did. You remember in Genesis chapter 2, and if you'd like to look at it with me, this is powerful. In Genesis 2... God told Adam, there's a, there, you can eat of all the trees here in the garden that you want, but there's one that you may not eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Genesis 2.17 says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's what the word of God said. But when the serpent came and tempted Eve, do you remember what she said? Yes, he tried to make her doubt God's word and said, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree that you want? Notice verse 3. She says, But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Is that what God said? It's not. Now, I tell my children all the time, Don't don't take that. So it's probably a good idea not to touch it. Then they won't do anything wrong with it, right? But is that what I said, right? So so the fact that they came up with this rule for themselves and said, you know what, listen, we're not supposed to eat from the fruit, so let's not even touch it. I think that's a pretty safe idea. But to say that God said that is where they, they crossed a very dangerous line. They said, God said not to touch it lest you die. 
I wonder if the serpent knocked one of those fruits out of the tree into their hands and said, Oh, you shall not surely die. God was wrong. See, you don't need to listen to him. But it wasn't what God said. And Eve and Adam were in danger of doing that. And the people in Israel were in danger of doing that. And in fact, they did. This is a scene in Jesus' life that I don't think we studied when we went through previous portions of the life of Christ. But in Matthew 15, they challenge Jesus about his traditions. And Jesus is going to make a very uh, 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 scathing response to them about what they have done in adding to God's word and then assuming that that's what God had said, just like Eve did. Matthew 15, 1 through 9. The scribes and Pharisees who went, who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Verse 3. Jesus answered and said to them, Well, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father and mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me as a gift to God, then he does not need to honor his father and mother. That's what they were saying. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. No wonder they got angry at him. But see, they accused him. They came to Jesus and said, listen, we see your disciples. They're eating the food, but not washing their hand according to our traditions. The practices that had been handed down by the elders of Israel. But you see, those commands were not in the word of God. They were developed like Eve did in the garden saying, well, don't touch it. They came up with a whole system of these equations so that they didn't have to think about what they were doing. They could just plug it in and have their answer and go on their way. And so now when they say Jesus and his disciples and they're eating this food and they say, wait a minute, they're not, they're transgressing, they're violating the traditions of the elders. Why do they do that? And Jesus said, why is it that you transgress the commandment of God? in order to to fulfill your traditions. God gave a command. You've added stuff around it. Not that those things added around it were bad. Sure, it's good to wash your hands. But were they really sinning because they hadn't washed their hands? They weren't transgressing the commandment of God, simply violating the tradition that the Jewish culture had established. But they had elevated their tradition, their customs to the level equal with the word of God. And Jesus rebuked them and said, "You are you, just to keep your traditions, you are violating the command of God. In that particular case regarding food, he went on to say, listen, whatever you put in your mouth, that doesn't defile a person. What's in your heart, and that stuff comes out, that's what defiles a person. They had missed the heart issues by creating a bunch of rules for themselves and then elevated those to the level of the word of God. If Eve did it, the Jews did it in their day. Are we in danger of it? We are. 
We saw it. That's why Paul said to the Thessalonians, hold to the traditions, but hold to the things that are from the word of God that I gave you, not your human traditions. And um, there are ways that we need to look into this ourselves. Look, uh, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. This is the Great Commission. We read it earlier, right? I want you to notice a couple things. What are the commands, the directives that God gives us in this verse? It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I see three commands in this passage. Do you see them? Now, this is kind of our charter for what God wanted the apostles to do, and he said that they were to pass it along to everyone else, and so, by extension, we're supposed to be doing these things too, right? He says, I want you to make disciples of all the nations. I want you to train up these followers of Christ, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded you, right? I've delivered these commands to you. I want you to teach it to them so they will do it too. Now, these are the commands, the directives, which we are to accomplish. But notice, how are we supposed to make disciples? Are we supposed to go door to door? Are we supposed to go to the temple like they did? So uh, uh, we need to find, go to Jerusalem or to some other equivalent in our culture. Are we, are we supposed to go to our neighbors? What does it say? It doesn't say. The form of how we fulfill these functions often is not specifically laid out for us. If we live in a culture where there's a lot of people that can't read, is it okay then to teach people to read and have a Sunday school? That's where Sunday school started, right? Children were coming, they couldn't read. They, they were forced into the workhouses, and so they couldn't even go to school. And so they said, listen, come on Sunday, your day off. We'll teach you to read. We'll teach you to read the Bible. But the Bible doesn't mention Sunday school. So if we decide not to have Sunday school, are we breaking the commands of God? What about the gospel meeting? Okay? For years, churches had Sunday evening gospel meetings. And sometimes people come visit and say, well, don't you have a gospel meeting anymore? And sometimes the insinuation is, you've departed from the faith. You're not functioning as the church should. Come on, Sunday evening is for the gospel meeting. But the gospel meeting were started when people were available on Sundays and would come. And if they're not coming anymore, are there other ways we can make disciples and preach the gospel? There are. And yet sometimes we are uncomfortable when these these forms that we've been following are absent or changing because we're used to them. Which we should feel a little uncomfortable not washing our hands before we eat. But we haven't sinned, right? We, we, we just need to be careful. The functions, the commands, the principles are laid out for us. But the forms in which we try to apply those and carry them out often are not specifically uh, uh, prescribed for us in the scriptures. Same thing with baptizing. Does it say where we're to baptize? Whether it's okay to do it in a tank in a building or down at the lake or a pool at someone's house or the ocean? God didn't tell us where. He did tell us to do it. What age is it appropriate? 
Is it supposed to be at night like the Philippian jailer did with his house? Or is it okay to do it in the daytime? Well, it seems to me the point of Scripture is, he says, I want you to do this. What's going to work in your family? Brock Smith said that the family from, from, from uh, the Philippines lives five hours away from them. And so they're planning sometime in the next month to go near where that family lives five hours away to baptize them because they've got like 35 other family members in the extended family who don't know Christ and they want them to witness it. We can do it here or there, right? But we want to follow the, the directives, the, the commands, and the form needs to follow that and flow from it. Same thing with uh, the teaching, right? It says they were to teach them to observe all things. Well, huh, how do we do that? Do we do home Bible studies, Wednesday night meetings all together, small groups, large group? It doesn't exactly say. We're given some freedom in the form as long as we understand the function that we're trying to fulfill. I'd like to think of it um, like what we used to do for football games, right? Let's just suppose this is a football field, and I got my two sidelines, and I got the end zone down there, and my team's got the ball. And my coach tells me, I want you to get a touchdown. Get the ball into the end zone. Okay, that's my goal, my directive from the coach. Get a touchdown, get the ball into the end zone. Well, how do I do that? Well, we come up with a play. Well, you know what? On, on uh, At the line of scrimmage, we're going to line up here. And when the, when, the, when the quarterback gets the ball, he's going to give it to this guy who's going to run around the outside over there towards the end zone. Okay, so can he go anywhere with that ball? Sorry for those of you who don't know football, right? So I get the ball. I'm trying to run around the left side like the play says, and suddenly I realize, hey, wait a minute. This guy wants to force me past this line over here. The rules say I can't go past that line. Well, what do I do? Well, my goal is not to only get over here. My goal is to get over there. And so I'm going to change my direction and get around that guy and cut back over this way to get over here. So the goal is prescribed. The boundaries are prescribed. But there is some liberty in how I get there while I'm trying to do those things as long as I obey the rules and stay within those boundaries. And the Word of God is providing this those boundaries. Look at the Lord's Supper. Um, I forget whether that was the next passage I had. Can, I want to go to that passage. Okay. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, in that passage, that's just one of the verses. He said, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. I have to ask myself this question. What are the directives, the specific directives that Jesus gave in the passages that talk about the Lord's Supper that he wants us to do? He specifically said, he took bread, gave it to them and said, take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do that in remembrance of me. Here's the cup. He gave thanks for it. He gave it to them. He said, take ye all of it, drink it, do this in remembrance of me. As often as you do it, do this in remembrance of me. Those things are very specifically prescribed. But did he prescribe at night, in the evening like he did, in an upper room, reclining on the floor? He did not. And when the New Testament writers in the epistles, when Paul wrote it in 1 Corinthians, he didn't add any of those things. And so the way that we try to put the form together, okay, so we say we're going to do what Jesus said. We're going to take the bread and the cup and pass it one to another in, in remembrance of him. We're going to give thanks like he did. How are we going to do that? Now we've got to make some decisions. We can't just stare around and wait till it passes itself. We've got to make some decisions. Where are we going to put the bread? 
Where are we going to put the cup? Are we going to do it in the morning or the evening? Well, we don't have a second floor, so we're going to do it on the first floor. So there's, there's like layers of, of things that we need to consider. What are the directives of Scripture? The clearly laid out, defined, specific commands and principles and directives. Are there boundaries, either in this passage or others, that tell us? You know, there are. It's not in this passage, but the Bible tells us in, in Corinth, they were coming together to do the Lord's Supper. They did it over a meal, but they were, they were being selfish. Some people were getting uh, overeating and getting drunk, while other people were going away hungry still. And he said, you are dishonoring Christ, saying you're here to remember him. But that's, that's not the way Christ did it. You're actually contradicting the very heart of Christ in the way you're coming together, saying you're trying to remember Christ. And he said, you eat and drink judgment to yourselves. But they still took the cup and passed it and drank it. But see, they were going outside the boundaries. And so there's, there's the directives that are the goal. There are the boundaries that, and principles of Scripture that go along with those. But within that, there is some freedom. But the longer we do things, sometimes those customs begin to feel like it's the way it's supposed to be done. And that's where we can get ourselves in trouble. Balancing biblical commands with our human traditions can be very difficult. We've already talked about baptism, evangelism. We touched on that a little bit, right? Uh, he did say to go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations. Uh, so we should be seeking to reach out to others, to other people groups all the way around the world. And uh, But how we go about doing that, he's given us quite a bit of liberty. I was thinking of this. Elders. In Titus 1.5, Paul said to Titus, Listen, I've left you in Crete so that you can set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. The Lord says each local church should have elders to help uh, guide, shepherd, govern that local body. But he didn't exactly say how we were to end up recognizing those elders. What are we supposed to do? There are some people who say well, we can't appoint elders anymore because Titus isn't here, Paul's not here. But he wants them in every church. And so 